Hi, everybody. Welcome back to episode 34 of A Couple of Creeps Podcast. I am your hostess with the most is Morgan, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Colin. Say hi, Colin. Howdy. <laughs> Howdy. <laughs> Howdy ho. I'm I feeling much better this week, by the way. I just want to share that when he was gearing up for his howdy, he was shaking his fingers. I was wagging my fingers like I was doing a little boogie. <laughs> How do you make a tissue dance? Put a little boogie in it. <laughs> That's right, and then you wag your finger when you yeah. do it. What's the one your dad did? I, I would, he would shake his finger yeah. like he's doing a little ditty. Yeah. He'd say, I've got the boogie. boogie. I've got the, the boogie. boogie. <laughs> I've got the boogie on my finger, and I can't, can't shake, shake it, it off. off. Yeah, and some old white guys (laughs) jokes there this is also the same man that went to historicon so i was also there you were like five no i was not no i was much older you were five you were five for the story you were five for the story you were five it'll make you seem like a cool person that you grew out of it you want to play D &D. (laughs) that's different i don't know what you're fucking trying to be better than others for that's different. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to talk about Lester Warfel Brocklehurst Jr. today. Naturally. Naturally. That is a mouthful of a name. Yeah. Jr. He's a junior. Yeah. And his middle name is Warfel. 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 With the first name of Lester. 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 Let's just stick with Lester. Lester. Tell me about Mr. Lester here. Lester Warfel Brocklehurst Jr., known as the Crime Tourist, was an American spree killer and serial killer who, together with his girlfriend Bernice Felton, killed at least three men in holdups during a six-week crime spree across multiple states in 1937. Hell yeah. Were they like a Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah. Found guilty of the final murder, Lester was executed at the Tucker unit the following year. So that's just a little... The Tucker unit. The Tucker unit. Where was the Tucker unit? You'll find out. All right, man. We're going to move into his early life. Let's do it. Lester Jr. was born in Poria, Illinois, the first son of Mormon couple Lester Wolfrell Brockerhurst Sr. And his wife, Edith. 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 Another son, Carl, was born in 1930, and Lester also had a sister named Fern Irene. Jesus. There's a lot of weird names here. You got Lester, Fern, Irene, Edith. And Carl. And Carl. 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 Get back, Carl. Get on back. (laughs) (laughs) I was going for the Walking Dead, Carl. I don't know what you did. I don't know. I I just heard all these names. Lester, Edith, Fern. I was like, get on back. Get on back here. Six months after Lester's birth, his family moved to Galesburg, Illinois, where they stayed until moving to Dallas, Texas in 1926. Lester's father started an interior decorating business while the family was in Dallas. Lester attended grade school in Dallas before moving back to Illinois with his parents and sister, this time settling in the village of McQuan, Illinois, which is located near, near Galesburg. He graduated from McQuan High School after completing his schooling. He went to work at his father's painting and decorating business, which was relocated from Dallas. Okay. For some time in Galesburg, Lester was the president of the Mormon Church's Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association. (laughs) He was also a Sunday school teacher. Oh, wow. While in high school, Lester gained experience in drama and public speaking. He could not participate in athletics due to having received an injury while trying to pole vault. What a loser. I need to know what the pole vault injury was. Right. Yeah, it went right up in his butt. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. 
you landed on it wrong and it went, I always feel so bad for those videos you see of the pole vaulters where the pole doesn't fall the way it's supposed to yeah, and it just stands jams back them up. right in the ass. Yeah. Or in the taint. Oh god. And I'm like, ooh. That's the kind of pain that for like ten seconds you want someone to shoot you in the head like a lame horse. Yeah. You're just like someone, please step out on the track and shoot me. Take me out, <laughs> please. Like there is something about I don't know if it's the same for women, but in men, I can that's what I can speak for. Something about like a taint strike. Like if you fall off your bike forward and you hit a bump or something, you fall forward and ram your taint on the like bar of the bike. Yeah. It's the kind of pain that like takes your breath away. You're just <laughs> and you just hope that a car will run your head over. <laughs> just, <laughs> just end you. End it all. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> that's just how I feel. I don't know. Lester met Bernice Felton, who at the time was 16 years old, at a public speaking contest in Illinois. She was a fellow competitor in the contest. The two got to know each other over a period of time and fell in love. But their homes were 165 miles apart, so Lester could not visit her as frequently as he wished. He visited her every two weeks and wrote to her in between. Damn. Every two weeks he was making that 100-some-mile trip. Yeah. In the 1930s? Yeah. That's hardcore. Yeah. They weren't getting great gas mileage back then. No. So he's spending some coin. And they didn't have I-70 going either, right, so. yeah. Couldn't just hit yeah, he's traveling, going down the freeway. He's traveling state routes and on a pretty poor vehicle. Mm. Couldn't be me. In January 1935, Lester and his father argued about money. The argument resulted in Lester leaving home and hitchhiking to Chicago, where he held up a candy shop. He was quickly arrested and convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to two-year prison sentence at the Juliet State Penitentiary on February 11th, 1935. I like that his first mark was a candy shop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it'd be mine. Give me all your Snickers. I want them now. Although a few weeks into his sentence, he was transferred to Illinois State Reformatory in Potonic, Illinois. Bernice kept in touch with Lester through writing as he served his sentence. Her father advocated on his behalf, resulting in his parole on March 7th, 1936, just over a year into his sentence. He was paroled into the custody of Felton's father and started working in a nearby department store and print shop. He expressed a desire to take her to Salt Lake City's Mormon temple to marry Felton, but he did not have the money to support Felton or make the trip. As a result, on March 31st, 1937, the couple embarked on an 18 statewide crime spree motivated <laughs> by robbery. Oh my God, we're going to rob our way to Salt Lake City and get hitched. In a Mormon temple. Yep. So, now we're going to talk about murders and capture. On the, on the same day as their son's disappearance in the city, a 47-year-old local tailor named John Alden Thander disappeared along with his car. Sometime later, his body was found on the outskirts of Rockford with a single bullet hole in his head. Jesus. After killing him, Lester and Felton traveled to Salt Lake City and then on to Dallas before winding up in Fort Worth on April 28th. There, they held up a tavern owned by a man named Jack Griffith who attempted to defend his property from the two criminals. In response, Lester shot and killed him on the spot, and the couple fled the state. Their next destination was Little Rock, Arkansas. On May 6th, they ditched John's car and traveled to Memphis, Tennessee on foot. Jesus. There they were picked up by Victor A. Gates, a wealthy landowner who resided in Little Rock, who drove who drove them there. When they reached Arkansas, Lester shot Gates in the head, robbed him of his money and valuables, and then threw the body into a ditch. Naturally. Naturally. 
From this point onward, the couple wandered around the country committing about 40 robberies and holdups, but no other known murders were recorded. After robbing a bakery in Philadelphia, Lester and Felton arrived in Dutchess County, New York. On May 13th, a state trooper named Joseph Hunt noted that their car was missing a license plate and stopped them. It's always shit like that. Yep. When he noticed that there was a loaded revolver in the car, he took the couple to fish kill for further interrogation. Not long after his arrest, Lester admitted to being the outlaw who had been robbing various establishments in the past weeks and additionally confessed to the three murders. The contemporary press liked the arre- likened the arrest to that of a bank robber, Merle Vanderbush, who had been arrested nearby for a minor traffic violation. Yeah, exactly. It's that. Like you said, it's always something small like it's that. It's small like that. <clears throat> you figure they got Capone for tax evasion. Wasn't it um, the... The serial killer that went for the girls with the long brown hair, and he had the teeth, which is how they got him, the bite mark. Oh, um, yeah. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Didn't he get pulled over because one of his headlights was out? I think his taillight was out. Yeah, and the cop swooped around to tell him that. Yeah. And then noticed all of the goodies. Stuff in the trunk. Yeah. Yeah. Two days after his capture, a nervous Lester was detained in... Poughkeepsie, as officials from Illinois, Texas, Arkansas, New York, and the federal government were discussing on which jurisdiction would house and charge the accused with murder. Yeah, since it's been a multi-state. Yeah, they're trying to figure out which one of them's taking it. Yeah. Due to his frequent fadings, he had to be sedated by jail physician George E. Lane, who told the press that his behavior was caused by overexcitement. My God. This dude was just passing out. Yeah. While incarcerated in his jail cell, Sheriff Paul Johnson of the Rockford Police Department traveled to Poughkeepsie so that he could interview Lester about his possible involvement in the murder of a gas station operator, whose name was Herman, Mm -hmm. on February 12th in the small town of Rockton, which was located not far from Rockford. According to Johnson, Lester had been, not Lester, Herman had been murdered with the same type of gun used by Lester. Gotcha, okay. In the end, a decision by New York's then-governor, Herbert H. Lehman, concluded that Lester should be extradited to Arkansas and handed over to Prosecutor George Hartya, reasoning that they had the strongest case against the killer. Lester had no objections over this, as he wanted to get it over with, and was assured that in any case he would end up in the electric chair. Prosecutor Hartya publicly stated that he would demand death sentences for both Lester and Felton, which prompted Abraham Felton, Bernice's father, to tell the press that his daughter had allegedly been told a sob story from Lester about how his parole officers were hounding him until they got married, and so to get rid of them, he took her so they could get married. So basically, Dad's like trying to get her. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. This is all that bastard's fault. This is all his fault. Trial, sentence, and execution. The pair's trial was scheduled for June 14th and was to take place in Lenoki, Arkansas. During this time, both Lester and Bernice were kept under suicide watch, as both had declared that if one of them took their life, the other would do the same. They were kept in separate cells, but were still allowed to share meals together under the prison guard's supervision. Twenty days before the trial was due to start, Lester's attorneys notified the circuit judge... W.J. Wagner, that they would petition the Supreme Court to stop the trial after their previous request for a 30-day continuance had been denied. On the eve of the trial, Lester and Bernice had a quarrel, and as a result, she was allowed to be present as a state witness against her former partner. Oh, shit. 
Lester's attorney's defense was based around the claim that their client was insane, but the prosecution countered their claims with evidence from the state hospital for nervous diseases, which upon examination determined that the defendant was completely sane. Yep, he was within his faculties. At the end of the trial, Lester was found guilty of killing Victor Gates and sentenced to die in the electric chair. Upon hearing the verdict, he fainted and had to be carried to his cell while unconscious. My God. His father, who was also present, also collapsed. My God, it's, it's hereditary. <laughs> the following day, Bernice Felton was also put on trial for the murder of Gates. Much to the public's dismay, after deliberating for only 80 minutes, Felton was acquitted of the murder charge and set free. Wow. She and her father were transported to stay the night at a tourist camp as the locals were likely to attack them if they were seen on the streets. Yeah, no shit. While spared a murder conviction, Felton faced additional federal charges for transporting the stolen car of one of Lester's victim, victims across state lines from Arkansas to Tennessee. She was found guilty, and after yep. the judge harshly admonished the jury that had acquitted her for murder, he sentenced her to the maximum term allowed for the charge, five years in prison. After her release, she married in 1948 and had a son in Baltimore in 1949. He died at age 16 in an automobile accident. After the marriage ended, she married again and became the mother of eight more children. Jesus. But that marriage, too, ended in the early 1960s. Bernice herself lived until age 88, passing away in 2007. Wow. She was buried in Rockford, Illinois. Over the following months, an appeal was lodged to the Supreme Court for the commutation of Lester's sentence. But on November 30th, it was promptly shot down. Upon hearing the decision, Lester received the news calmly, saying that nothing he could say would help him. While awaiting his execution at the Tucker unit, Lester was interviewed about yet another murder, that of an identified man found dead in Poughkeepsie around the time that the pair were seen in the area. On March 2, 1938, Lester's attorneys presented a petition signed by two Little Rock doctors and more than 50 Galesburg residents, which claimed that Lester was mentally ill, mentally Ill and thus ineligible for execution. Despite their last-ditch attempt, the Jefferson Circuit Court threw out the petition, thus confirming the death verdict for the final time. On March 18th, Lester Brocklehurst was electrocuted at the Tucker unit before being strapped to the chair. He gave a 12-minute statement, ending it with a rant about his affair with Bernice. His last words were reportedly the following, The only thing that brought me down to this was a slight love affair with a girl. I don't want her to get, that, I don't want her to get the chair, but she is just as guilty as I. Yeah. And that is the story of Lester Brocklehurst Jr. What do you think? It is kind of shitty that, like, like did he do all the shootings? You know what I mean? Yeah. Was it him and Tim? Like, did he sh pull the trigger every time? Or did they take turns? Did they you know, take she turns? killed some people, you he know, killed others. She had feminine ways. She could have lured the men out. Right. If, you know. Like he said, if she was just as guilty as he, like he said, he's not wishing that she'd get the chair, but they should both probably get the same sentence. Yeah. Because she did the exact same things he did. Yeah. It's pretty shitty that her dad was there to basically, oh, no, no, no. My you baby know. wouldn't do that. That's yeah. all him. Yeah. But also it sucks for the dad that he like pulled for the guy to get him out of jail the first time. Mm -hmm. And then the guy takes his daughter off on a killing spree. That's probably why he was like, it wasn't her. It was all yeah. him. Yeah, he's like, fuck that She'd guy. never do that. Yeah. And what this dad's got some pull. Yeah. He got Brocklehurst off uh, his first charge, and then yeah. he got his daughter out. Totally scot-free from well, a murder charge. Well, yeah, got her away from the murder charge. 
uh, you know, then she ended up going down for the car. Yeah. But five years in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. When, you're, isn't when much. you were potentially getting the chair. Yeah. And you figure at the time that all this was happening, she was 16. So by the time everything was over, she was 18. Yeah. And then gets out at, you know, 23. Yeah. So her life had just started. So yeah. uh, it's pretty shitty. Yeah. Love will make you do stupid things. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. But that's all I have for you. What do you have for me? So here in Colin's horrifying histories, uh, I want to talk about fucking Genghis Khan and the Mongols. Because you figure last week we talked about the Black Plague and I kind of referenced that they did a number on the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of focus mostly on the Middle East here. Um, but yeah, so we're going to talk about... So I'm going to call him Genghis Khan, Chinggis Khan, because apparently Chinggis Khan is more correct. Yeah. Genghis Khan is kind of the American, like, you know, Westerns yeah. reading the name and going, that's Genghis. That's Genghis. But the name's more likely Chinggis Khan. Yeah. Um, but he was actually born Temujin. So I might say any of the, those names interchangeably. They just all mean the same dude. So... Uh, Genghis Khan was born to the name Temujin in the year 1162, uh, and by 1206, he had united several of the nomadic tribes in the Asian steppe, uh, which, like I was telling you earlier, the Asian steppe is basically this giant open plains yeah. uh, in the main Asian, Eurasian continent there. That's like the size of two Atlantic Oceans next to each other. Good Christ. It's just this big flat open area with, you know, might have some rivers, might have some mountains, might have some, you know, like I said, open plains. Yeah. Um, but that's why they were most famously, they were horse archers. Yeah. Is because horses were indigenous to that area. And if you wanted to get anywhere safely and quickly in that big flat open space, you had a horse. Um, the fucking Mongols were nuts. They would put their kids on horseback at like two years old. And start teaching them, you know, how to ride. Um, and allegedly the, the women were just as uh, able riders as the men, which makes sense because yeah. they all lived on horseback. And, you know, they didn't live anywhere specific. They just traveled. I, I couldn't imagine being on a horse at two years old. I rode my first horse at like 12 and it scared the crap out of me. I've never ridden a horse. Um, but then, uh, like, they would teach the boys archery at a very young age. And allegedly the... You know, like your really good horse archers could fire their, you know, they could time it so that they would fire their arrow on horseback when all four feet of the horse were in the air. So that way their, you know, their shot was pretty steady. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of like how allegedly we train our snipers to uh, hold their breath and fire their shot when their heart beats Yeah. in between beats. Um, but all of that to say that these fucking nomadic tribes are pretty intense people, but um, so he, you know, Genghis Khan by 1206 unites a bunch of these nomadic tribes, uh, and then declares himself king of all those who lived and felt tense. Uh, and that's a really rough translation yeah. of, of Genghis Khan. But basically it just means that he's, if there's a nomad tribe that lives in the steppe, they're his, they're mine. Now, a lot of those people didn't, didn't choose, didn't, and they didn't know that, you know, <laughs> he basically gets to show up to a new place and go, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I am your God King. I am your King. Worship me. Yeah, and if they didn't, they either died or bent the knee, you know. Yeah. Um, and they would bring them into the fold. Uh, and this is when the official start of the Mongol Empire uh, hits, is in 1206. And then pretty soon after that, in like 1211, he declares war on the northern kingdom of China called the Jin Dynasty. And so then the to kind of segue, <laughs> we get to 
see from an outside perspective what that looks like. Yeah. So uh, according to the Persian chronicler named Juzani, uh, somewhere around 1215, the Shah of a major Islamic kingdom known as Khorizm um, sent spies to China to see if they could be invaded because he was kind of like new kid on the block. He was up and coming. He was set to be like a major Islamic superpower. Yeah. And he'd heard about China, but hadn't like seen anything, hadn't done any major trading or anything like that. So he wants to send these spies out there, see what the story is, and see if it's something that we could take over and make it part of our kingdom. Yeah. So the spies are led by this man named Baha al-Din. And when he arrives near the city of Zhangdu, which is basically modern-day Beijing, mm-hmm. uh, they find this snow-capped mountain off in the distance, or the snow-covered mountain. And when they get close to it, they realize that it's not a mountain. It is a massive pile of bones. And they're like, oh, that's disconcerting, you know. That's horrifying. And they travel a little bit further and they come upon uh, the road just starts to get so swampy and marshy and soupy. And it's because it's been saturated by and and, and soaked in the fat and the grease. Like they describe lakes of grease. Uh, That is the result of human decay. So where bodies have rotted and all the fat starts to liquefy and run off into grease. There's so much of it that the road is just falling apart and their horses can't pass and they have to make a detour uh, and go off the road because apparently the stench was so bad that uh, a lot of the party got sick and some of them even died. Jesus. Um, Now that's stinky. Yeah. And they haven't even gotten to the city yet. You know, this is just on their arrival. Right. And they're thinking, what the fuck? Um, And then when they arrive to the city of Zhengdu, they find these massive 50 foot high walls that are made out of stamped clay. Uh, It's got over 900 battle towers around it, and it's a city of a population of around 1 million people, which at the time is like a huge city. I mean, that's a a metropolis. And so to these Khorizmians, they're like, holy shit, this is like an insane city. These Chinese are insane. Yeah. I can't believe they're this advanced, right? And except for the the really scary part was that the city's a ghost town, uh, and it's been (sighs) devastated. And they find, allegedly, there was, like, the bodies of nearly 60,000 virgins out just outside the city walls that they said looked like they'd all leapt from the walls, um, presumably to avoid what whatever fate they them. thought was yeah. held for them. Um, and so now they get to basically go back to the Chrismian Shah and be like, hey, so good news, we found China. <laughs> they are incredibly advanced. Bad news, there's somebody or something out there that killed them. And it's like... Oh, you know. Oh, neat. I mean, imagine coming upon the most advanced city you've ever seen, and it's been destroyed. And you're like, oh my God, what what did this? What is happening? And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that's where some of the, like, dragon lore comes from. As you would think, like, this, you know, a monster did this, you yeah. know. Um, but so that's basically the Middle East's first real introduction to <laughs> the Mongols, right? Is just seeing this. Oof. Uh, and then so an Iranian historian named Rashid al-Din uh, says that the Mongols, while led by Temujin, killed more than 1.3 million people in the city of Merv and nearly 2 million people in the city of Nishapur. Uh, according to the data, the Persian population at the time may have fallen from 2.5 million people all the way down to as low as 250,000. <laughs> so literally 10% remaining oh my God. of the original population. Now they do note that um, that's not just from the killing of people directly. That could also be from the resultant disease and famine. Yeah. Like we talked about with the Black Plague. Yeah. If you kill 1.3 million people out of a place that has 2.5, you know, so many farms go unkept, things like yeah. that. And you've got so much disease from, yeah. you know, 
the bodies just being left to rot in the streets, uh, that then people die from that. But uh, it's also important to note that there's many population exchanges uh, is like the nice way of putting it, where basically those people either end up leaving because there's nothing there for them or they get taken into slavery by the Mongols. Um, And so that 250,000 number remaining is after the deaths from famine and being specifically murdered and then from them having to flee or be taken into slavery. Um, Either way, the Persian population was actually, actually decimated. Uh, then Temujin dies in 1227 after a brief illness and it's not really known. Uh, it sounds like it could have been malaria. It could have been, there's a bunch of theories. They talk about like maybe he fell from his horse and had internal injuries that he just never recovered from. Um, but Marco Polo, the famous, uh, Mm -hmm. traveler, he stayed with the Chinese Mongols like 60 years later. Yeah. Uh, and his, the story he was told was that Temujin had been shot in the leg with an arrow and never recovered. So probably an infection. infection. Yeah. Um, but it was a really closely kept secret. So nobody knew that Temujin died for a fair bit because they were in the middle of uh, conquest and they didn't want the enemy to know that yeah. basically the leader was gone. Yeah. Um, and then his burial is crazy. So apparently they take him really far off into some hidden location. Uh, all the slaves that dug his mausoleum are killed by the guards uh, so that they can't tell. Yeah. Those guards are then killed by the infantrymen so that they don't know. And then those infantrymen march back to their base, killing everyone in their path that sees them. That way, nobody can say, hey, I saw the guards coming from there. Yeah. And then when they got to base, they committed suicide. So it's this whole thing where even today, we still don't really know where he's buried. Yeah. Um, and he's one of the weird ones where we don't really know for sure what he looked like. Yeah. Because um, he was, I say it's a weird one where at the time, you know, you're in the Middle, e- the Middle Ages and he's a emperor. You would think there'd be a ton of art and drawings yeah. and writings, but most of the writings that we get are from after the fact. Yeah. You know, it's all oral history, um, and we don't really know what he looked like. Allegedly, he might have had red hair um, and green eyes, but we don't really know. <laughs> That's not what, what I you expected. Yeah. yeah, no. Um, it is important to note that like something like... Um, Was the bad guy from Mulan called Shao Kahn? Could have been. But that's he was what, a he was a Hun, so he is. That's kind of what I picture. Right. Well, and that's because uh, the Huns were about five hundred years before the Mongols. Okay. But they're the exact same like type of people, where they are the Huns led by Attila were steppe nomads that conglomerated into power and then attacked China, um, which is part of why China ends up being famous for its walls, is yeah. because they were constantly fighting off the steppe nomads trying to move into the empire. Um. Which is why you get the Great Wall of China. Yeah. Basically, they're just putting up a fence to keep the riffraff out. Yeah, keep the people out. <laughs> Essentially. According to the Persian chroniclers, in 1237, so about 10 years after uh, Temujin's death, the Mongols were led by Ogadai, who's his son. Uh, and this, I'll give a like a trigger warning here, uh, because we are talking about the conquest of cities. Um, yeah. There is some um, like sexual assault talk uh, coming yeah. up. So, yeah, like I said, the Mongols were led by Ogadai Khan, and he decided to punish the Orat people for not contributing their expected cohort of young women to the Khan's harem. So basically they had like a tax to pay, except the tax was their young women. Um, and the punishment that was ordered by Ogadai was that 4,000 of the Orat girls were to be repeatedly raped by his soldiers and the girls' families to be forced to watch. Uh, reportedly, two of the girls died uh, from their assaults. And the rest were distributed as sex slaves throughout the harem, merchant caravans, and the Mongol army. That's awful. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, and like I said, that's just to basically teach that city a lesson. Yeah. You know, teach that, that hey, don't, don't disobey us anymore. Don't fuck with me. Um, and then this one I put in here for you. So one of the losses that's not considered uh, when you talk about the Mongol conquest is the loss of culture and knowledge. Yeah. Um, so in 1258, one of Genghis Khan's grandsons, uh, Helugu, besieged the city of Baghdad, which is the capital of modern day Iraq. Yeah. After the siege was complete and the sacking of the city began, uh, there were contemporary accounts, meaning people at the time reported that, uh, suggesting that the death toll was around 800,000. Uh, but they note that that does not include those who were drowned, remarking that children were thrown into the mud face down and never got up. Um, or those that were dying from disease, famine, and those who took their own lives out of fear. So you had people committing suicide because they knew what was coming uh, yeah. for them. Some sources put the true totals somewhere near 2 million, but an accurate number isn't really known. Uh, at the time, Baghdad was a pillar city uh, during this Islamic golden age, uh, where basically Islam was like the height of the world at the time, yeah. and the Catholic Church was still rising. Um, and so most of your scholars and stuff were from Islam. So there were several great libraries, palaces, and mosques in Baghdad that was where science and the arts had been taught for centuries at this point. And supposedly the Tigris River, which runs past Baghdad, yeah. had ran black with ink uh, from the books that had been thrown into the river and red with the blood of the dead philosophers and scientists that had been slaughtered and dumped there. Um, and it is said that so many books were thrown in the river that all of the Khan soldiers could ride across them on horseback as if a bridge. What a waste. Yeah. And, you know, and again, it's in a time where that might be the only copy of that book. Yeah. You know? And I mean, the, the thing that a lot of people were starting to realize now as we get a bigger picture of the time is you figure we've got a dark ages in like the 500s uh, and going forward after the Roman collapse because a bunch of written history and knowledge was lost. And a lot of those books had actually been copied and saved by, yeah. the, uh, by the Islamic, you know, philosophers and stuff. So that knowledge wasn't lost. It was just housed in the Middle East. And then the Mongols come along and ruin it, ruin it. Um, and allegedly the Mongols, uh, after the, they didn't leave anybody alive in Baghdad where basically they drug people out and the order was given that every single soldier, every single Mongol soldier had to kill 300 people that day. Um, you know, so, and that was kind of how they would do this wholesale, like slaughter was basically line them up and every soldier brings me 300 ears. And that's how we knew that we got everybody. Um, and then, just to summarize the the horror, uh, under the Mongol Empire, which was ruled first by Temujin uh, and his descendants, his grandsons and such, hundreds of cities were conquered with millions dead left in their wake, with some estimates putting the total deaths uh, caused during and in the immediate aftermath, aftermath around 11% of the world population at the time, somewhere between 40 to 60 million people, uh, oh. which if... If 10% of the world population were to be slaughtered today, it would be about 800 million people. Goddamn. And the Mongol conquests were effectively from 1206 until the early 1300s. So within about 100 years, 10% of the world population was wiped out. That's awful. By just like one dude and his kids and grandkids. I don't even know what to say because that, that's horrible. I mean, so picture your grandfather and when, you know, in his lifetime your mom's lifetime and your lifetime, you guys killed 60 million people or in today's world. It'd be 800 million people at its height. The, so I don't know if you can picture a world map people, but at its height, the Mongol empire reaches Poland 
and is touching the Atlantic Ocean over in China. It's one of, before, uh, I believe before Great Britain, it's the largest empire in the world. Jesus. And it's a dude on a horse. Yeah. And it's this weird thing where, like, Dan Carlin does a really good um, series on it called Wrath of the Cons. And it's a, you know, it's a long form thing where, like, I just kind of pulled it sounds really grim, but like the highlights, you know, yeah. but he's able to really get the into the nitty. Notes. Yeah. He's able to really get into the nitty gritty about it. Um, and he's pretty impassioned because apparently in like modern historians, like the way they're writing about it now is they're trying to look at like the, the upshot, you yeah. know, what were the benefits that this brought to the world? You know, where it's like, Oh, it connected parts of the world that had never been connected before and things like that. And all these new trade routes and stuff. It's like, yeah, but 60 million people died. Yeah. In a hundred years. Yeah. You know, and when you're talking about the rape of 4,000 girls and you're like, yeah, but think of the culture, you know, it's a really weird, it'd be somebody in, you know, a thousand years trying to talk about the good of the Holocaust. Yeah. You know, and you go, uh, uh it's the Holocaust. It's, yeah. It... And, and so, yeah, it's a really weird, weird place to be when you're talking about, you know, one of the, probably one of the deadliest people in the world. I mean, you figure when we talked about the Black Plague last week, 50 million people were killed by a disease. Yeah. This guy killed 60 million people. Jesus. He was deadlier than the deadliest plague in the world. But uh, that's what I had for you this week. I, I do like it. <laughs> it's a little rough to take in, but I like yeah. it. But I, I guess mean, that's why historically horrifying. Yeah. I mean, think about all the books that were lost, even, you know, just the knowledge. Like I said, you know, Islam was the height of the world as far as knowledge and, and research and science and all that stuff's gone. We don't know what they had. And that's sad. Yeah. I, you know, stuff like that always bothers me, like the Library of Alexandria. Yeah. Just you don't know what was in there. Yeah. Um, one, there was a there's a a thought in a lot of um, historians and like uh, anthropologists and stuff like that, that the Middle East still hasn't. Basically, it set the idea was that the Mongols set Persia and the and, and you know the um, Arab states back a millennia. Basically, pushed them back a thousand years. I can I can see it because you as far lose as the knowledge sixty million lost, people and all the knowledge. You've it's going to take a while to rebuild that. Yeah, as far as the knowledge that was lost, the people that were lost, and things like that, and like they did a bunch of terrible things to their um, irrigation systems. So that basically they couldn't grow crops the same way anymore. And they basically set this whole region back by a thousand years. And so today they still technically would be behind. Yeah. Compared to where they would have been had the Mongols not showed up. You know, if the Mongols hadn't showed up, the Middle East would probably be the like the epicenter of the world. They'd be like what Great Britain ended up being. Yeah. They'd be the hub. Yeah. Where because Great Britain existed, you get the Americas and things like that. But it would have been the Middle East. Yeah. Which is fascinating to think about because obviously you can't the, picture, you can't that. picture not, it. That's not, it's not what we're able to see. Yeah. That was good though. Yeah. Scary stuff. It is very scary. It's just one dude. One dude. <laughs> one dude with a dream, you know, <laughs> and he just wanted stuff. Uh, that seems to be his main motivator was loot. Yeah. Jesus. Well, if you want to. Send us an email with comments or stories you'd like to hear Colin or I talk about. You can send us an email at a couple of creeps at gmail.com. That's the letter A, 
coupleocreeps at gmail.com. And I'm thinking next week I want to talk about conspiracy theories, like the yeah. Illuminati and maybe another one. You could do a few. I could do a few, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on what you might want to do next week? I have no idea. I might go a little bit further back in time and talk about... Unfortunately, a lot of the really horrifying things in history are like battles. Yeah. You know, and conquest and things like that. So I might talk about there's a, a really awful uh, battle that the Romans were in uh, called the Battle of Cannae. That's really terrible for if you're a Roman soldier. Well, I can't wait to hear about it. <laughs> so our faithful listeners, I hope you have the best week. And as always, stay creepy, my friends. <laughs>